Hello and welcome to the Innovation Insight podcast brought to you by the Walton Institute. In this podcast, Philip O'Brien and Gary McManus present the FATE project, as well as some research areas they have incorporated into recent proposals. These include federated learning, natural language processing and explainable AI. We hope you enjoy it. In the next few minutes, what we're going to do is, um, like Theodore said, we're going to give a, an overview of FAITH. Uh, we're looking at some of the techniques that we're exploring in the project and also what we think you might find um, interesting. So I'll give a, a brief introduction um, to the uh, just what the project's about and then Philip will get stuck into the more of the, the technical stuff. So FAITH, what, what does FAITH stand for? Um, it's Federated Artificial Intelligence Solution for Monitoring uh, Mental Health Status for Cancer Treatment, for post-cancer treatment patients. So basically it's an app for cancer survivors. Um, what we want to do is track and monitor uh, depression markers to see if there's any downward trajectories um, in these markers, which will then help doctors to eventually maybe um, predict um, depression. So it's a H2020 funded project, um, research project, RIA. Uh, and it's coming out of the, the commission health call. Um, it's three years in duration and five million in funding. Uh, we've one million of the funding is coming to WAT. And we've nine partners in the, in the project spread across Europe. So what we've done is we've, we've started um, three pilots in the project. Uh, so we've three pilot sites, um, one in Lisbon, one in Madrid and one in Waterford. And for each of the pilot sites, what we've done is we've coupled up um, a cancer hospital with a research organization. So in Waterford, we're working with UPMC. Uh, two of the hospitals are looking at breast cancer. So that's ourselves and the hospital in Madrid. And the hospital in Lisbon is looking at um, lung cancer. So within the project then to see what we at the start of the project, as you know, you write the proposal, you submit it to the commission, they say yes, and then you come back and say, oh God, what did we say we we're going to do? So we've, we've kick-started the project with a, a study protocol um, just to see, make sure that everyone is aligned with um, the goals of the project, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Um, this study protocol then is a big help with regards to getting ethical approval um, because it has a lot of the ethical questions, how we're going to um, address them in the project. Um, and say, for example, the informed choice and how we're securing the data. So that all goes into the study protocol. But two of the, the key outcomes from the study protocol for us are uh, primary and secondary questions that we're looking at. So the first one is the measurement of depression events um, and anxiety. And the secondary outcome, outcome is going to be the, the quality of life. So the quality of life is more of a, a softer one, but dealing with a, we're dealing with a, a large trial uh, so as I say, we're trying to find signatures for depression um, that down the line we can validate in in our patients. Um, so we're looking to see what what the novelty factor is for us um, from the tech side. So for a long time, I guess in the TSSG we've de developed tech and we just developed tech for the sake of developing it. But I guess uh, we're now starting to see how it can be used. Um, so we're looking to see how the data can be gathered autonomously um, within Faith, and then try to to deliver. Um, similar results to what's um, out there, what the doctors are using at the moment. So uh, next one then is the, the vision for the project. So, okay, um, you'll see 
as tech has been developed, um, uh, there's been a lot of IoT devices coming on board. So your people have watches, they've got phones, they've got sensors. We're, we're trying to um, get rid of all that um, and trying to eliminate the need for too many devices so that we're just using the, the person's smartphone and maybe one other device, which is the, a sleep monitor. So all the apps on the phone um, can be used, all the, the sensors then on the phone, we're gonna use that for gathering data. Um, designing with privacy in mind, I guess um, at this stage, everyone's aware of the privacy and having to protect their data. And this is where the, the federated learning approach comes in. Um, so Philip's going to talk about this. But basically, we keep the data on the phone and it doesn't get sent up to the cloud for analysis. Um, so the algorithms and the machine learning, that is, um, that's also sent down to the phone. But then when we're working on the data, um, Philip's going to explain all this, but work on the data. We send the algorithms back up to the cloud where they can be modified, uh, made better, and sent back down to the phones. Um, so basically, all this is just making it easier for the doctors and making it easier for the patients. As I said, we're trying to avoid too many devices, avoid patients having to learn how to use new apps. Um, um, and then for the doctors, it's more or less we're giving them an early warning system. At the end of the project, hopefully, we'll have an early warning system that we can detect um, these these downward trajectories in depression and they have markers that they can keep an eye on. So I guess that's a, just a quick overview of what we're doing in the project. Um, how we're going to do this is up to Philip. He's in charge of the technical side and I guess it's all his idea with how we, how we address this in the project. So Philip, I'll hand over to you. Yeah, thanks Gary. So. Um... Uh, Gary alluded to something there called uh, federated learning. So federated learning, it's an area of research that's kind of exploded in the last couple of years. Uh, it was originally pioneered by Google, um, surprise, surprise. And what it is, is um, there's, there's a lot of seeming, seeming complexity around it. When you dig into it, um, it's quite simple at its core. Some of the techniques get very difficult, but to try and conceptualize it, it's actually not that hard. Uh, so the whole idea of federated learning is it's essentially trying to you're trying to decouple the ability to do machine learning from the need to store all your data and your processing up in the cloud. So this this little simple image here is um, unfederated learning. It's the kind of traditional world of AI or ML models that are being run in the cloud. So um, you have an app on your phone that might want to make use of some AI functionality. Um, and what happens is your data gets sent up to the cloud where some trained model exists. That data is given as input to the model. The output is then passed back to your app and then shown to you in whatever that's going to be, some prediction or classification or whatever it might be. Um, there's obviously a lot of issues with that. So you're giving your data away. So there's privacy issues. Uh, there's latency issues because you have to transmit your data. Um, there's costs for the person hosting all this stuff up on the cloud. Um, but the, the trying to overcome the privacy was the real motivating factor behind federated learning. So what federated learning tries to do is you still begin with a globally trained model, but now you deploy that model to everyone's device and the model gets retrained on the device with the data local to that person. The data then never leaves the device, never goes up to the cloud and each person's model learns according to them. Um, so what you get with that is you get kind of really hyper-personalized models. Um, you avoid the latency problems. You overcome a lot of the privacy issues. There are more privacy issues that arise that they're actively being researched, but you overcome the one of giving your data away to some third party. Um, and what happens then is this, you eventually have a range of 
these hyper-personalized models on different devices. And the change between the original model and the newly trained local model, that change is encapsulated. And it's only the change to the model that gets transmitted back to the cloud. And it aggregates all these different changes to result in an improved global model, which is in turn then sent back down to devices. So your device gets to learn from your local data, it gets to personalize for you, but then you get to benefit from the learnings that everyone else has had. Um, so it's a very powerful tool. When we were, it, it was new to me when I was looking at the proposal for FATE and it just fitted our use case very well because you, you think of the areas that this could work in. Um, so you're training self-driving cars using real world driver behavior, but you're not taking that data away from the driver. You're helping hospitals improve diagnostics, but you're still ensuring patient privacy. And for us, you're predicting changes in the mental health of a broad population, but you're not losing that privacy aspect. You're not giving data away. So it seemed a really good fit for us. Um, and essentially what it is then for faith, it's it's the bedrock that the rest of our algorithms are gonna hopefully reside on. So we're gonna talk about things like NLP, we'll have different sort of um, models to try and track changes in the mental health to be uh, really a suite of different things running on it, but it's federated learning at the core of what faith is going to be. Um, but a large part of it as well is NLP. So, uh, when people hear NLP, they often think chatbots, and you know, the chatbots get a lot of press at the minute. Um, but to try and explain briefly what NLP is, it, it's really made up of a couple of little different things. So you have natural language understanding, which is the ability for the machine to comprehend what's being said to it. Then there's some machine learning to determine the right response. And then there's a natural language generation. So you give some human-like response back. Um, say you're talking to a chatbot on Amazon or, or Sky or one of those, and you might ask, what's your returns policy? Then NLP side of it needs to be able to respond to you to say something like, you can return your item within 30 days. It's a very simplistic example, but that's how a lot of them work. Um, the benefit for us of really trying to put NLP at the forefront is, there's a nice quote I came across here from Emerson uh, back in the 18, 1900s. Uh, so language is a city to the building of which every human being brought a stone. So I like to read a lot. This made a lot of sense to me. Um, we communicate with language, whether it's written or verbal. Um, anything we learn eventually gets stored as language. You think of the trillion or so pages that are on the internet. Um, through language, we kind of capture our emotion. We capture things that we design. We capture ideas. The wealth of knowledge that gets tied up in language is obviously enormous but the difficulties around are also huge. So if we can tap into this, the benefits of any project that can make use of it are massive. Um, an issue with it though, is a lot of the times you kind of pull back the curtain on some of these NLP solutions and it's very Wizard of Oz. You know, the chatbot that you thought was telling you about returning an item could be one of a thousand call center workers that are actually just typing this stuff in. Um, and it's not that big an exaggeration. Having done some work with companies that were claiming they were doing really good NLP, what was running behind the scenes um, was not. So w when you talk about NLP and all the promise of it, I think it's really important to try and scope and bound what it is you want to do. Case in point, I don't know if people saw this recently, the last few days, uh, the OpenAI Foundation have launched this, um, they've publicized this new language model, GPT-3. It's been taking the internet by storm about all the capabilities it has. If you look at some of the uh, 
statements people are making on Twitter. So like open AI, GPT-3, maybe the biggest thing since Bitcoin. I don't know if that's a positive, but um, so someone I'm asking GPT-3 about the existence of God and now I have no questions anymore. This guy saying that he made, and this guy down here gets, you know, he's a fair bit of traction as an engineer, but he says he made a fully functioning search engine on top of it. And it, people saying, oh, game over for Google. You know, uh, Sam Altman on the bottom right, uh, his mind is blown and here are my thoughts on how everything is going to change. Now, you should always, Sam Altman is the CEO of uh, OpenAI, and he's a guy that did say OpenAI might be able to capture the light cone of all future value in the universe. So he is a guy that can uh, give in to hype, but hype with NLP is, it's, it's insane at the minute. Hype with AI has been kind of crazy for a couple of years, but NLP, particularly when you see this GPT-3 stuff, uh, the hype around it is just massive. People think NLP can do things that it can't do, and they see something like OpenAI and it just fosters it. Uh, for us, what we're trying to do with NLP and Faith is to really constrain what it's going to do. It's not a chatbot that's going to sit on a phone and have a really in-depth conversation with someone. We want to try and streamline the engagement between the person and the Faith application. Um, particularly because we'll be looking at older demographics, demographics or people that might have um comorbidities or illnesses that mean that um just using an app normally is going to be a bit of a pain so if we can try and streamline that with nlp that's a massive benefit for us but as i said we're really trying to deliberately limit what it's going to do um it, it is exploding there's one really interesting fact i came across when i was looking at nlp uh and how it's grown the last years is there's only two technologies in u.s history that had uptake by one in four americans in two years. The first was the iPhone and the second was Alexa. So they now projected like 75% of homes in the States are going to have Alexa or Google Home or one of those this year. Um, but you have to remember then that the, the at the last count, the number of engineers in Amazon working on Alexa numbered something like 3000. So the stuff that they're able to do is not the stuff that most people are able to do. So we want to try and streamline that user interaction. Um, but we also want to dig into the emotion of the user bit using NLP. Um, people might hear term sentiment analysis that pops up a lot in kind of machine learning tutorials. Um, sentiment analysis, usually if you want to use sentiment analysis learning on say your Twitter feed, if you're a brand to get, if someone's talking about you in a positive or negative light, but it's, you know, it's really about polarity. It's black and white. It's trying to see if someone's good or bad about this. Um, a layer up from that is then kind of emotion rather than just a good or bad thing what are the different flavors of emotion that someone might be um alluding to in the speech that they're using um but what's really interesting for us and this has gone into faith and it's gone into the recent garris proposal we put in as well is there's a there's a growing body of research using nlp to make inferences about people's mental health states so from what they write or speak and uh, to be able to predict things such as depression suicidality anxiety um, and obviously, if these can be monitored and detected, then you open up this whole new range of interventions. Uh, you know, historically, we've always prioritized physical over mental illness. There's a growing burden of mental illness um, resourcing across the world. So if AI can play some small role in this, I think it's obviously tremendous. So we see also massive interplay between um, voice analysis as well as, as, as well as NLP. So whereas NLP will try and do analysis of the words someone is saying. There's also some really interesting research around learning from the user's actual vocal traits. So not what they're saying, but how they're saying it. So 
based on their pitch or their loudness or their speaking rate or articulation, um, they're able to, there's been some really good evidence of linking those to symptoms of early cognitive decline, um, Alzheimer's, for example, or Parkinson's. So we're trying to look at combining the two of those to see if there are markers within them that might be indicative of depression or anxiety. Um, as a nice little aside there, if there's any Beatles fans, that whole image on the screen is Can't Buy Me Love. Um, it was the best one I could find. Um, and then a huge part of, another huge part of faith, is like three huge parts of it, but what, what was originally not a massive part of faith, it grew into a, a, a much more um, substantial part of a recent proposal. And it's all this whole idea of explainable AI. So anyone familiar with AI, they might have heard this, the fear of them being black boxes. You know, they're a closed system that they receive an input, it produces an output and offers no clue why. Usually deep learning models, there's, there's plenty of machine learning models that actually do, do give a clue why, but uh, with deep learning, it's been a criticism. Uh, this is obviously bad for many reasons. You look at uh, AI models being used for recidivism in in sentencing out in the states to models to try and predict whether someone is likely to commit a crime or not. And this is being used during sentencing or parole. And it's been upheld in courts in America where a model was used to deny someone parole. And when they asked to get an explanation of why that model, when the lawyers, the defense lawyers asked for an explanation of how a model could make that decision, the judge ruled that it was IP of the company that had developed the model, so they couldn't explain it to him. So there's some real worrying things around that. But for those of us that hopefully never commit a crime, we're still going to look for mortgages or health insurance, etc. And increasingly, these decisions are going to be automated. And if you can't explain why a decision was made by something that's automated, it's really worrying because you don't know. It might be accurate, but it might be accurate trained against the wrong goal. So. For us, if we're trying to look at explainable AI, um, it, it, there's, there's two large parts of explainability in my mind. It's The first thing is that you need to make sure what you're developing is reproducible. So model reproducibility. Uh, there was a recent survey in Nature where I think it was around 2000 researchers were surveyed and more than 70% of them have tried and failed to produce another scientist's experiments and more than half have failed to replicate their own experiments. So if, if you're publishing research, but other people can't reproduce it, or you can't even reproduce it yourself at a later date, then it's meaningless. I mean, how can anyone have any trust in something that's not reproducible? So we're looking at a host of different tools for this. Uh, I only have an image here of something called DVC, Data Version Control. It allows you to track models and data. It's like GitHub for modeling, basically. Uh, it's only one of the things we're looking at, because this is we're, we're just scratching the surface on this in the last week or two. Um, it obviously disseminating through some of the commission's agendas like open air and Xenadu, etc. Um, uh, but really this part of it, reproducibility for us is all about software engineering best practice. If, if we're building something, we need to track exactly what we're doing between that raw data and the model that acts on it, and then how to make that shareable and reproducible for other people. The other side of the coin from reproducibility is model transparency. So lifting up the lid on the black box, seeing where bias might have been injected. Um, it's all over the news lately you know, in America, systemic racism, etc. There's incidences of bias everywhere. And it's actually becoming a real hot topic in the machine learning community um, that there's inherent biases being built into a lot of algorithms that have a big impact on our day-to-day -day lives. 
uh, if anyone's read, I forget, Cathy something, the Weapons of Matt Destruction book. And it's, you know, it, it's it's a big part of it. There's algorithms making a lot of decisions on us. And there's a lot of opportunity for bias that we all have as people. But if, if that bias gets injected into an algorithm and we have no insight into what then is happening in that box, it's a worrisome thing. So what we're trying to look at with that, again, it's some new research from Google around it. It's the idea of these model cards is what they call it. Uh, they're essentially short documents that accompany a trained machine learning model. Um, they can provide benchmark evaluate, evaluation against different intended applications. They disclose the context in which the models are intended to be used, um, performance evaluation, other relevant information, etc. That slide is an example of one of Google's own model cards for uh, face detection model up on Google Cloud. Um, and it's a really it's a really nice idea that accompanying the model that you develop, there is something that really clearly explains to a broad audience what that model is designed for, exactly what it's doing with the data that it's analyzing, its output, and how that output then can be compared to similar models in that area. Um, so again, we're scratching the surface on that now. Uh, and TensorFlow, TensorFlow, I, mean, I said at the start that, you know, how I came to love TensorFlow, that's a great exaggeration. Uh, we're only new enough to TensorFlow. We previously used PyTorch on a lot of projects. But why I'm really coming around to TensorFlow is a lot of the things I spoke about, and at the time that they went into the Faith proposal, they were, I wouldn't say far-fetched, but they, they would certainly have carried a lot of weight in terms of the difficulty to implement them. And I would imagine that was a large part of maybe why it was um, funded, because some of those things seemed pretty innovative, I think, when they were written into it. In the meantime, TensorFlow has actually open sourced um, as part of the project some really helpful tools to do the kind of things we want to do. So uh, TensorFlow Federated exists to do federated learning for us. Um, TensorFlow Core was always there. It's the thing that your, your models are going to run on. To try and deliver explainable AI, there's a whole there's a whole uh, task on Work Package 4 and Fate dedicated to this. Um, and there's been open source projects that have come out the last year to run on TensorFlow to help you do it, um, which is great because it's going to save us a lot of time from something that was originally very useful, but probably a lot of just heavy lifting without getting into the nuts and bolts of the project, which is to try and give benefit to people that have had depression or suffering from depression. So a lot of these tools, um, TensorFlow Lite now allows us to deploy to mobile. TensorFlow Privacy allows us to layer differential privacy on top of our federated learning. And then model compression. There's this whole model optimization toolkit that previously there was research papers around model pruning, uh, model quantization, how do you make a large model much smaller to run on a device, all these different difficult subtopics. And a lot of it now is being implemented in part of TensorFlow. So it's hopefully saving us a lot of heavy lifting to focus on um, really the core goals of can we pick up markers for depression and anxiety in people that have had cancer treatment. And if we get to spend the bulk of the project looking directly at that rather than all the supporting infrastructure, it's obviously a huge win for us. Um, so that's me. That's Faith. And this is where I realise I've been muted or the meeting ended two minutes ago or 20 minutes ago. Thanks very much, Philip. I think if anything I took from that, I'm going to have to be really careful about what I say and how I say it, because you're going to be picking up on every little cue that we'll yeah. be saying. Um, does anyone have any questions? Um, 
Hi, dear Dre. Hi, Philip. It's Mohit here. Thanks for the presentation, yeah. Philip. Nice presentation. Yeah. Uh, uh, can you hear me clearly? Yeah. 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 So, uh, the question that I have is, I have two questions actually. The first question is, uh, what kind of data are you collecting or planning to collect exactly? What data that would be collected from these patients after the cancer treatment? What What's the plan over there? So yeah, it's it's what we're actually trying to do at the minute is define the different data points we're looking at. In the proposal, we had originally identified markers of depression such as activity, sleep, um, mental outlook, um, the um, activity. Yeah, it's really activity, sleep, outlook. Um, and as the project has kind of ramped up a bit, then some of the other partners have been doing a lot of work around uh motion analysis so not just activity uh gait changes to gait changes to different uh motion metrics so what we want to try and do is leverage the sensors that would exist on some smartphone leverage the nlp component and then only introduce one new device into the situation to monitor someone's sleep um so we're we're, we're currently specifying the different data points that we hope will uh, so the big thing with us is at the, at this proposal state we i thought we were kind of if we address all these data points, it's going to help us try and predict depression. But this is obviously really naive on my behalf. It was only when we're dealing with the psychiatrists and oncologists that the project has ramped up that they were saying, we don't know if all these different data points will help us predict depression. We hope they do, but we don't know. So essentially what we need to do is conduct a large exploratory trial where we cast the net over all the different data that we think might be meaningful and then over time see if we can extract patterns in it. So hopefully that answers it. Oh, so initially it would be like the activity data, the number of steps taken by the person or how they are doing the gate score. Yeah, yeah, it might be their gate. It might be, um, so so as you said, steps, but it might be then not just steps, but say patterns of activity within a house, patterns of activity outside. Are they going between the same locations a lot? Has has how they're moving changed over time, whether you're using then GPS or accelerometer, etc. So uh, we're trying to pin all that down at the minute. So. Okay, and the second one would be like once you have this data initially, the global training has to happen uh, obviously at some computing resource where you can train the model and then you can basically pass the model back to your edge device or your mobile phones. And yeah. then the later the idea is that instead of passing the data, you will pass the parameters back so that it retrains itself locally rather yeah. than doing it globally. Uh, so uh, like how that will happen because Currently, uh, there I, I believe there might be some issue related to ethical, which would be probably a longer issue that you are facing. But uh, still, the data will ha initially has to be collected globally. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So the end goal, obviously, is that we could have, we will we'll have discovered some patterns within the data set that would be indicative of the onset of a mental health problem. And those models then, hopefully, if they're developed, could be deployed as part of a federated learning environment. But Obviously, for us to be able to answer that question, the initial stage, we have to get that data ourselves to try and analyze it and make sense of it. Um, so as Gary said earlier, the, the study protocol that we're working on, um, this is something that needs to go to the ethics boards in the different hospitals really within the next few weeks, even though the trials might be for another year or two. So the, the ethics side of it is going to be uh, arduous but not something that we can't overcome it's clear that the data eventually data has initially has to come up to the cloud has to be analyzed by us but ultimately we want to then snip that tie between the cloud and the device and just have a model that can be deployed okay uh, thanks and last question um 
do you are you also planning to take care of any situational circumstances such as which is called like the uh, dependency training of models and just to be more clear on the question uh, so you know like if we if we do the this kind of activity based analysis and we say that if this is just for example let's say the neural network is saying that this is the stage when the animal, the person is showing some depression but currently let's say because of covid 19 uh, people might have lower activity levels as compared to what they would have had previously so there is a yep. dependency which might change the model's behavior at this stage so yeah. is there plan to take care of that during the training uh, in between training is there any plan already in the pipeline or uh... Uh, yeah so th those questions we're going to really hand over to the psychiatrist on it because we couldn't answer them um like even the warnings for us were that they said you're looking at models for depression but tailored for people that have undergone cancer treatment so depending on where we interact with them in the in, in the their kind of care journey i.e diagnosis or post-diagnosis affects it because as they said to us if you get diagnosed with cancer you're going to be depressed you know so all our markers are thrown out at that point so we have to um yeah there's, there's obviously lots of different knock-on dependencies here that need to be taken into account um so what we're trying to do is and i probably should have mentioned earlier as a slide is there are questionnaires used by psychiatrists to the, the current method for a psychiatrist assessing someone's mental health state for depression or anxiety, there are scales known as HAMD or there's one uh, MADRS, M-A-D-R-S, uh, Hamilton scales um, for quality of life. The World Health Organization has something called the EORTC -E questionnaire. So they do these kind of clinician rated questionnaires and someone answers the different questions and they might be guided through the interview and based on their overall score, they get a kind of diagnosis on it. So we're going to try and match what we're doing against that gold standard. So even though things like COVID will have caused knock-ons, in practice, those scales are still being used today, despite COVID. They'll just be weighted differently, I guess, because the person delivering the questionnaire has a bit of expertise around it. So by us partnering with the hospitals, we get to leverage that because we obviously wouldn't know it. We wouldn't know how to weight things based on uh, other parameters that might affect mental health. So yeah, it's a really good question, and it is something that we have to tackle. Oh, okay, perfect. Thanks, Philip. Thanks. Just to say as well, it, it's not a matter of um, us taking over from the doctors. Uh, we'll be supported by the doctors, so they'll still um, bring the, the patients in and have the interviews with them and have discussions with them. But we'll be working kind of alongside this to see if there's a match, what we're doing and what they're finding. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I should I should have dedicated a whole slide to that, really. So for the duration of our trials, every two to three weeks, each person in the trial is still going to be assessed by uh, a psychiatrist or some other appropriate expert. And based on their analysis, we're going to be based comparing their analysis to our analysis to see how on track we are. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, we'll get to see that in the wild, really, how things change. Um, uh, last question, Philip, just uh, it, it's probably a sideways question, but is the plan to give this as a telehealth care to like telehealth care service to the user or uh, something like that in some some idea around will it be like a telehealth care service to the user towards the end once the project reaches the final stage or will there be some other kind of service model for this? Uh, I don't know is the quickest answer to that one yet. Uh, we haven't really thought of uh, exploitation past the project. It'll be something that obviously partners in will work on during the project of what what gets exploited. Is it something that gets exploited directly by the hospital? 
um, which I would imagine there'd be some level of friction with this in that the hospitals were delighted to get on board, but the idea of federated learning where the power kind of gets handed off to the user a bit is, is uh, not always in line with what the hospital wants. The hospital might want all that data coming into their own private infrastructure and then that they sell some offering like this on top of it, um, yeah. whether they're public or private hospitals. So that'll be a conversation that comes up, but I, I don't know yet. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. I think Ruslan has a question there. He has his hand up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, hi, Philip. Uh, I think for privacy, uh, privacy protection, uh, some project may do some data analytics on the encrypted data. So, so when writing the proposal, uh, have you considered or compare this kind of uh, privacy protection data analytics tools or techniques? Yeah. So that's my question. So just. Uh, uh, I saw some project uh, do the data analytics on encrypted data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there was one. One of the partners have put in a piece, and it's, it wouldn't be my area at all about uh, different kind of homomorphic encryption methods. And we we talked about distributed ledger technology to try and audit the the access to the data. I know that's not really the the that sort of encryption, but. Um, what what's come out in the meantime? I alluded to earlier is there's a differential privacy part to TensorFlow. So um, to try and add this level of noise to each individual user's data set so that no one user, no, no update from one user is enough to kind of give them away in terms of a more global model. So uh, I would imagine we're going to try and bake that in on top of the federated learning. Uh, but beyond that, the encryption is not my area at all. So. Um, okay, fine. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry, yeah, I don't know if that answered for you, but I, I'm not the encryption guy. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm just a little curious about uh, those kind of techniques. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Rusang. And Jim, you have a question? Yes, hi, Philip. Um, hey, Gary, th thanks for the great presentation. Um, <clears throat> the, the question I have, I remember, you know, at the beginning of Faith, when I was a little bit involved, we were discussing about um, getting data from um not just from you know the the patients themselves but from caretakers perhaps or from family members because you know uh when you have an elderly patient and you ask them how they're doing they usually say you know i'm grand or you know i'm fine even though they're not you know and then <clears throat> the family members you know might have a, a truer picture of of you know the mental state or the physical state of the the patients. Um, so, it, do you do you have that as well? In addition to, um, you know, what you're gathering from from the apps. You know, is there is there kind of a personal interaction between uh, the caretaking, you know, either the external people or the family members as well? Yeah. So we're we're trying to scope out, and I think Madrid are kind of taking the lead on this one. The guys in UPM and the Madrid Oncological Hospital of um, as Gary showed in, the, in one of the initial slides, is the primary outcome of uh, measurement of depression and anxiety, and then the secondary outcome of measurement of quality of life. So for the, for the primary outcome, um, we're trying to really look at what data points can be used autonomously, that they just captured in the background and requires no real input, so that that gives our novelty as opposed to what is currently done. Um, for the quality of life, we think a lot of those different uh, uh, examples that you just gave about a family member's opinion or a carer's opinion. Um, so I think they might populate more the secondary outcome. So um, 
we're hoping to have more of this stuff listed in the next week or two uh, from Madrid. But yeah, so I, I would say we will look at how we best capture that. But I think it's going to sit under the quality of life goal. Okay, that's good. And just a second question. The um, I mean, obviously, this was written before COVID-19 hit. Um, but have you looked at some of the, um, you know, the, the mobile tracking apps that they have at the moment and, you know, compared it with the, you know, the federated decentralized privacy preserving model that, that you guys are doing? Um, uh, no, really, we haven't yet. And it's probably a, a worthwhile exercise um, to see how it fits in because it's, it obviously wouldn't have been a train of thought at all, but there's been such a, uh, there's been such a necessary push towards the sort of decentralized approach. Um, there is probably a lot of good research for us to try and at least do a comparison to see what we're doing. So it hasn't happened yet, but it's a good idea. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Innovation Insight podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast streaming services. For more information on the Walton Institute, check out our website at www.waltoninstitute.ie and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Bye for now.